Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 15. Episode 4. This is Writing Excuses, revision with Patrick Rothfuss. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Dan. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Howard. And I'm Pat. We are super excited to have a special guest for you today, Pat Rothfuss. Pat, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I write fantasy novels sometimes, and I do charity sometimes, and I'm a dad sometimes. Awesome. Uh, your main book that uh, most people know you for is The Name of the, the Wind. Name of the Wind, one of the best selling fantasies and best written fantasies, Aww. in my opinion. <laughs> so, That's why we've got you on to talk about revision. Revision. <laughs> so let's start. With, we're going to talk about, and, and the first thing that I want to ask the, you guys is how do you know what needs to be changed? When you look, when you've, you've finished your first draft, you're ready to start revision, and it is time to cut something out or make something better. How do you know which parts need to be cut out or made better? So one of the things that I do is I actually trust my reader reactions. Um, I, you know, I, and I'm talking about before I hand it to a beta reader, uh, that, or, or sometimes even after I hand it to a beta reader, one of the things that I look at are the ways that I respond to it. Uh, when I've got a piece of media that I love, you know, like I, I cannot tell you how many times I've seen The Princess Bride, I still have an emotional response to it. And so I can trust that if there's something that I really love, I will continue to have an emotional response to it, even though I know exactly what's going to happen. Therefore, I should still be having an emotional response to my own work, even though I know what's going to happen to it. So what I do is I pay attention to places where I'm bored or when I'm reading it and I'm like, what, what, what does that mean? Like when I don't know what I meant with my own stuff, I'm like, that's a problem. That, that never happens yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, and then sometimes, uh, so I, I have awesome where I'm like, hey, that's good, which you, you do have, you know, mm -hmm. um, bored, uh, confused, and then disbelief where I'm like, what? And sometimes the disbelief is it's just like an itch. It's like, that doesn't feel, it feels off. Um, so I pay attention to those. And, uh, and generally speaking, what I've found is that um, most of the awesome things I can leave alone, not all of them, but most of them I can leave alone. The bored ones are usually an indication of a pacing issue, which means I either need to tighten it or I need to unpack it to give a re the reader a reason to care. The confused ones are always an order of information thing where I just haven't passed it to them in the right order. Um, sometimes it's still in my head. Uh, and the disbelief is something where I violated their sense of the world, mm -hmm. um, either the natural world, the physical world, or the metaphysical world, which is the character's life. Um, so I address those uh, based on, on my own reactions, but I have, to, I have to like pay attention and trust it. And the thing that I do is I, I mark it, but I don't make the changes because that flips me out of my reader brain. Hmm. 
That's cool. Now, I couldn't help but notice that though that's A, B, C, D. Yes, it's... <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm going to add to that uh, evil, if you want to go all the way to E, because uh, writing horror, if my readers <laughs> yes. write back and say, how dare you do this? Why are you such a monster? That's something I know I probably want to keep in. <laughs> <laughs> See, I would call that awesome. Or, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, might, might have been... Ah! That also begins with a. For my own part, um, I don't get to begin with what needs to change. I have to begin with do things need to change? Because when I'm scripting the comic, I will sit down, I will script a week of strips, and I want to sit down, I want to start drawing. I want to move to the next stage. If I put art on a bad script, I've wasted a whole bunch of time. Um, And so my rule is I write it, and then I walk away from it, and I come back to it, and I look at it, and rarely, rarely do I allow myself to put art on something I wrote that day. Because the answer to if... You know, does it really need to be edited is always yes. The answer is always yes. But it's not the Howard who woke up this morning and wrote it who will say that. It is the Howard who went to bed having written it and woke up the next day and realized that yesterday's Howard is just not as smart as he thought he was. I actually, I love that because I always talk to like my students or if I'm talking to people about writing about how do you get distance? That's what you always need from your writing is distance, and it's so hard to get objective space away from something you made yourself. And sometimes it's time, but honestly, time is magnified by, like, a good night's sleep Mm -hmm. Um, or, like, physical distance or change of venue uh, in addition to other things. But, yeah, the good night's sleep, uh, especially if you didn't, I would say uh, the night's sleep is almost the the benefit of that is eradicated if you do what I do, which is you write until you're exhausted and then you immediately fall into bed. (laughs) Collapse. Yeah. And then like you wake up and it might as well have been five minutes ago that you wrote it, you know, even though you might have been asleep for eight hours. One of the things that I I think about it, like I do the things that you're talking about, but the other one that I find useful um, to speed up, like when you're, when you're on deadline, and you you don't have time to take time to like set it down and let it breathe for six months or a year or what have you. Um, I found that narrative distance will often mm. help me. That if I write something else or I read something else, that it resets my brain so that I'm coming back to it as a new story, and it, it resets my reader expectations. Yeah, going back to the well is not going back to the well because I need water. It's going back to the well because I need to throw myself into the well <laughs> and climb back out new. Yeah, uh, yeah. and I, I will say that, that, that this for me is, is a, a revision thing. It doesn't work for me for, as a drafting thing. Drafting thing, I have to be careful about holding the, the yes. right story in my head. Yeah, mm-hmm. I always think of that as effectively like loading up into active memory the world. Although, honestly, if I'm revising plot or structure, I need to hold all of the world and the structure and the tension and the pacing. So that still needs to be an active memory, which is why that's dangerous for me to, like, really get engaged in a compelling piece of TV, or but especially print stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... When 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 it when the time comes, then we've talked about uh, 
getting distance from the work. We've talked about using readers and trusting in their feedback. What other methods do you have for knowing what needs to be changed? I've got a good one structurally that I didn't mention today. Mm. Um, I kind of wish I would have remembered. This was way back in the early days of Name of the Wind. I was trying to get the beginning to work. I struggled with the beginning more than any other part of Name of the Wind. Um, And even so, I got it to the point where it's passable. I honestly still don't think it's good. But um, I broke down every chapter into scenes and every scene, and scene by by which I mean um, every where I broke it with asterisks. Mm -hmm. And then I subdivided it even further into French scenes, which I don't know if that's a common term other than in like the study of Shakespearean drama. Um, Because you have like Hamlet act two, scene four. But every time somebody enters or leaves stage, it is a new French scene, even if there's not a scene break. And one of my drama professors pointed out that every time somebody entered or leave, left, it was a different scene, and there was a new purpose to the scene that Shakespeare was fulfilling, Mm -hmm. because Shakespeare was a really amazingly tight writer. So I broke down every single French scene in the first huge chunk of the book, and I talked about what I was, what the purpose of each of them was. And some of them had, like, three purposes, and that was great. Um, But some of them only had one purpose, and then stacked up against each other, it said, it was like, Quoth is smart and cool. It shows Quoth is smart and cool. Shows Quoth is smart and cool. Shows, and I'm like, oh, that's why this is draggy and dumb. I'm doing the same thing again and again. These all also kind of talk about the world or they build character. But their central element is all the same. And that's why this seems boring and it's not compelling and it's not trucking along like it should. So that helped me spot the problem mm-hmm. that I then needed to like figure out how to fix. Was If I can ask just to dig a little deeper here, was there something specific that you're like, you know, if all of these are just showing both as smart and cool, what did you decide to add? Like, I'm going to have a scene that shows that he's fallible. Or were you thinking more tonal or? That was actually back in, I can remember where I was writing up this document. That was in 2001. So it was still six years before I was published. Mm -hmm. So this was really in the early days of me getting a good grasp on how I thought about tension and pacing and reader curiosity and all the things that now I consider myself quite good at. Although I think of them, I think... I conceptualize them a lot differently than a lot of people who like have studied them or worked in writers groups just because I was sort of like foraging in the wilderness and I came (laughs) up with my own weird thing. Um, And so now like I look at the old Star Trek and I'm like, oh, A plot, B plot. Mm -hmm. That's what they're doing. You know, Um, this is a story shape. And so I was like, if I have a short arc then I just need to make sure you start something and then eventually you have tension until it resolves and you need to support it until it resolves. But you also don't want to have, you know, you don't want to start it in one chapter and end it in the next because then you haven't given any room for tension to grow and your reader to be curious and engaged. So I just wanted, I always now make sure that there's space and difference, but I don't do A plot, B plot, 
it's it's a mess. I, I, the, I mean, mine is it's all held together with like baling twine and barbed wire. Uh, I, I mean, barbed I, wire I, holds things together pretty darn well. It's yeah, but it's painful. Like, so yeah, don't I don't mean, follow in those footsteps. <laughs> um, it's it, it works, but it's not a system that I think can be necessarily emulated or recommended. Funny you should say that because in terms of defining a structure, uh, you know, using A plot, B plot as an example, if I can look at something I've written and after the fact tell myself, ah, I'm doing A plot, B plot, that's awesome because it's something that I know the reader knows how to resonate with. Mm. Um, If I'm working, if I can't tell what the form is, what sort of structure I'm working in, unless I have done something to tell the reader that their expectations are going to be subverted. Unless I've warned them, they're going to run into that and and perhaps have problems. So I love finding that I'm working in a given structure because then I can say, ah, okay, I'm doing A plot, B plot. How do I do it so it doesn't feel like canned beans? <laughs> um, how do I, you know, what are the pieces that are missing? What are the pieces I'm doing right? And the question that I always have to ask the moment I discover I'm doing something structurally or trope-wise or whatever is, wait, is that what I meant? Yeah. Is that what I wanted to do? Um, But I love finding it because I know that if I speak using a structure, three-act format, hero's journey, A-plot, B-plot, whatever, the reader will know how how to respond. Yeah. Okay, I've got another really cool question I want to ask you guys, but first... Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Let's break for our book of the week. Well, it's actually a... Oh, it is a book this time. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about it. Um, I have to gush about uh, the Murderbot Diaries, uh, which I'm guessing a lot of you already know about. They won a ton of awards last year. Um, They're a series of four novellas by Martha Wells and... I, no offense, Mary, but they, they're, they're my really, favorite things that I read. I, I, they're like really these last good. couple of years, um, they're so good. I have not empathized with a character, with Murderbot, with a character more than Murderbot maybe ever in my life. Yeah. I cried. They're amazing. So good. I actually, hugely geeked out on Martha Wells at the Hugo's <laughs> and it was so embarrassing because I just like, I'm like, Oh, I want to mention that I like your books. And I was just, wow. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, I did that. That's so embarrassing. I can do it too. Um, you know, there's, they're so good. Make sure you read them in order though. Read the first one because there's a contiguous storyline. I can't recommend them highly enough. Awesome. That is the Murderbot Diaries by Martha Wells, who has an excellent last name. 
<laughs> now, before I get into my other question, you, Mary Robinette, you looked like you were going to say something. So we were talking about tension. Um, and one of the things that can happen uh, when, when you're looking at revisions and you're trying to decide, you're like, oh, this doesn't have tension. This doesn't have a thread. Like deciding which thing to keep and which thing to, um, to get rid of can be tricky sometimes. Um, and so... I talk about the mice quotient in terms of frame a lot, but it's also really good for you defining which pieces of conflict to keep in a story. Mm -hmm. And what I find is like, if I have an inquiry story, what I know is that the story ends when my character answers a question. So all of the conflicts in the story need to be preventing the character from asking a question. So if that's one of those, those, you know, 14 plot threads that are going through the story, then I can't let the character actually get to that question. So if I have a, a thread in there that is, if this scene is like, is about an inquiry and, and there, it's about a different inquiry than the main one that I had been asking, then that may be a thread that I don't need. Or if it's, if it's something that I never resolve later, it's like, get rid of that. I just went through, I, <laughs> I, blame Brandon, but I just finished writing uh, The Relentless Moon, and my finished draft was 180,000 words, and the previous novel in the series was 99,000 words, <laughs> and I was like, I completely blame Brandon, but I, I wanted to cut it down significantly. Now you have two more books. Now I have two more books, exactly. Um, so one of the things that I looked at, looked for, were threads that I never really used. A lot of times you use something and it raises tension in a scene. It's great in the scene, but you don't pay it off later. And so those things, when you pull them out, can dramatically reduce the length of your work, but also tighten it and make it structurally a lot more solid. It's not that everything needs to, to wrap up at the end because life is messy. Sometimes it is nice to have something that's still a little fuzzy at the end, but that's, those are things that you look for. It's like, is this serving the story? Does this have a payoff at the end? Uh, and that's that's the kind of thing I look for. Yeah, I uh, want to absolutely second that. Uh, and we'll make sure to put this in the liner notes, but I recommend you all go and find uh, the YouTube video by Lindsay Ellis. She's a film critic, and she has one on three-act structure mm -hmm. where she recontextualizes three-act structure entirely around moments of tension and resolution, hmm. which redefined it for me in a way that I had never understood it before. And it really has changed the way that I revise because now I'm not looking at, well, is this thing done, but what is the tension of this scene or this act or this whatever, and when is that going to get resolved? Uh, and so it's really great. So anyway, uh, I want to ask another question that I'm, I'm excited about, which is, let's say that you are looking at your work, you've finished one or more drafts, and you realize that a secondary character has become far more interesting than your primary character. How do you fix that problem? How do you approach that? Do you just make that character more boring? Do you make the main character more interesting? Like, what do you do? Um, my, because this happened to me, and I struggled with it a lot early on, because it is scary. You're working hard to make your main character compelling. Um, and then suddenly you create, like, sort of a charming fairy who steals every scene in the opening when what you need is for everyone to be interested in your mysterious innkeeper. And 
Uh, what what are you talking about? <laughs> just in theory. I mean, <laughs> these are archetypes, and uh, they are now like, like in, in the tarot, mysterious innkeeper. Right, yes. Uh, <laughs> fuck, I should do my own. Oh, sorry, didn't, didn't cuss. Um, but uh, ooh, uh, the the big the solution I feel is don't worry about it because you certainly don't want to say, oh, this is this bard is too cool. I better take it out. That's always a losing proposition. Um, okay, yeah, you come at me later because <laughs> what I just said isn't true. Um, but the vast majority of the time, you know, what is lovable about Bast is that Bast is simple. Bast is, he's not actually one note, but he seems very one note. And simple things are easy to digest and sort of, some of these, like, Han Solo, like, lovable rogue-type characters are sort of compelling in in themselves, whereas more complex characters, it's, it's the difference between your high school crush and the person that you marry for 10 years. You marry that person for, and you stay with them for 10 years because you have a rich, important relationship with them. But that doesn't mean that, like, that week you went to Morocco, you didn't have something really amazing and tempestuous with a dark-eyed woman there. Um, Both of those are good. And honestly, in the same way that I think having both of those leads to, like, a rich and satisfying life, you want both of those things in a book. Um, It's just they both satisfy different needs, even if one of them is a little shinier on the surface. I I completely agree with you. I'm going to say that I got distracted by the analogy, and I would love you, for you to do a different analogy that's slightly less sexist. Yeah. Well, I mean, I marry. Which which part is is sexist? Like a, Morocco. A, Morocco. No, no. The the um, if comparing. Sorry, this I've seen you use this analogy yeah, before, and it yeah, bothers come at me. me. It, it bothers me every time. Um, com. com Comparing, uh, comparing moments of writing with um, with women. I see. I think of it as I have relationships with characters and I have relationships with women. So I'm mostly thinking of my own experience, but I see what you're saying because what you're kind of coming at is I'm presenting this as a universal as opposed to my personal experience. Exactly, yes. And that does seem sexist, yeah. Uh, so... Do we want to? I mean, we'll keep rolling, but do we want to go back and cut? I can do it either way. I mean, I think it's it's valuable to see a misstep in correction for some people. It kind of depends on the tone that you want to achieve here. It sort of eats up some airtime. Well, I mean, we are talking about revision, so this is actually a good revision moment. <laughs> yeah, okay. like, actually, like when to- you get called on something in a critique, and you're and you have a pushback, you have a no, I don't think this is is right. But then you think about it, and you're like, okay, well, what is my area of intention with this, and how do I get this across without triggering that again? And that awesome. actually is great because you're like, you know, I was like, oh, I was trying to achieve this, mm-hmm. and you're like, you might have been trying for that. But here's actually the effect of what you said. And I'm like, oh, right. I probably, for some of my audience, I hit that effect with this. 
And because I was coming at this from my own experience, I wasn't anticipating the effect on other people. Right. So now in an attempt to revise, like, and that's the tricky bit of revision for me, is thinking this one came out of me very naturally and it seems compelling because of its organic nature. But now I've got to stop and sort of disentangle myself from the affection of the original. Mm-hmm. Um, because it came out of sort of uh, an honest emotional place in my personal experience. And then I've got to think, how does that work? And then that, in my opinion, is the real work of writing. Yes. Because when it comes naturally and it's good, you're golden. That's not work. The work is looking at it and saying, ugh, I've, I've got to— I've got to lay some bricks. And honestly, I don't know what I would do. I don't know how I would re- revise that analogy. Can because, I take a stab at yeah, it? Yeah, help yeah. me. Can I take a stab at it? Um, there is the music that I write to, and there is karaoke night. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Karaoke night is a thing that it is music. It is performative. It is songs that we are familiar with. But karaoke night is not what I want to listen to when I am trying to write. Uh, I, sp- I have... Thousands of hours logged on the same 200, 300 songs in a playlist uh, that I use for writing. Um, those are my those those are my go to. Those are my main character. But without karaoke night, uh, without karaoke night, that's kind of that's kind of lifeless. Without singing in the shower, without these other pieces, and so. Coming back to the original question, which was, what do you what do you do when a character is when a secondary character is overshadowing your main character? What do you do when karaoke night? Everybody is loving that way more than the main musical theme of your book. Yeah. Well, um, what is it that they're loving about karaoke night more? Why is it? Oh, well, it's because the characters are interacting here in a way that is energetic and fun. Why is that missing from my main character? This is why I don't play uh, D&D more than a, a one-shot, is because that narrative is becomes. often, often is that, that becomes more compelling to me. And that's a side quest yeah. in, my, in my quest for writing. It is mm-hmm. the secondary character that has become more interesting. Um, but I did like what you were talking about, the relationship that you have with the thing. You were going to say something. And that's what I want to ask, because what you did when you were talking about that, I'm like, that makes sense. But it also gave me a moment to sort of stop and sort of back away from it and think about the primary issue you had with it. Was it the fact that I was talking about relationships or the fact that they were gendered female? It was that they were gendered female, but specifically that they were gendered female and based on appearance. Well, the first one wasn't. I said the marriage of 10 years. Yep. And oh, the that's other true. one but the was second one. It, no. The other one was a week in Morocco. It was a vacation, and I said, "I said a beautiful dark-eyed woman. What if I said a dark-eyed beauty, and a marriage of ten years? Does that resolve the sexism? Oh, because that might be a simpler fix than changing my entire analogy. That is an interesting idea. This I'm is not, revision, right yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> and that that may in fact have solved it for me. Um, although I think because beauty is still a gendered word in modern yes that I would still probably read it the same way. And and also because there there's also then the 
Morocco and dark eyed and, and what are you coding there? There's some racism <laughs> stuff there right. that's potentially, yeah. Um, and this is why we revise. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, I, I really <laughs> wish we could say that we had planned this because I think it worked out perfectly to tell you all these points of revision and then to demonstrate them all in order. <laughs> like trusting reader feedback and then workshopping and all these different things that we did to getting distance from it. Uh, but that is all the time we have, and I'm really glad that this worked out the way it did. Uh, this has been a fantastic episode about revision. We have we want to leave you with some homework to do, which Mary Robinette has. No, I think Pat actually had this. Was it Pat? I oh. don't remember who it was. We oh, both I did. I think down. we both had the same one. Okay, well, well we're going to have Pat say it then. Mine actually might have been the one that I already mentioned where go through your chapters and list your purpose because if you have never done that, it is incredibly informative. Um, and also, it helped me realize that I want each scene to have at least three purposes so that if two of them don't land, there's still something in it for the reader. But what was yours? Uh, you get two homeworks this time. That's right. It was the 10% solution. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was, uh, which I think we've done on the podcast before, yeah. but, um, but it is still worth revisiting, which is to examine your work and look at cutting it by 10%. Uh, and you can go through and say, you know, okay, I'm going to cut this paragraph by 10% or this page by 10%. But this process forces you to examine it and think about why is this word here? What is it supporting? Um, and a lot of times you cut that 10% from your thing by saying, you know what, I'm going to pull this entire subplot out. Yeah, and uh, this is something I did repeatedly to Name of the Wind. Um, and I would always think, well, that's it. I've cut everything that can be cut. But then an another couple of months later, I would go through again, and I'm like, actually, now that it's cleaner and tighter, I can see other things that weren't as clean and tight. And I do, I aim for every page 10%. So if I'm not cutting a line or a sentence or a phrase, you know, it really forces me to consider what is essential on a page. Yeah. And if you're someone who writes short, which happens to you sometimes, um, it is also worth, as an experiment, adding 10% yeah. to decide where things need to be fleshed out. Cool. Well, that's great. This has been our episode. You are out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was recorded by Bert Grimm, mastered by Alex Jackson, with your hosts, Dan Wells, Howard Taylor, Mary Robinette Kowal, and special guest, Patrick Rothfuss. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.